God's beloved people, grace to you and peace from God, our Creator, and from our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's easy for us to think of imagination as child's play, something akin to make-believe or pretend. We embrace imagination in children, fully expecting it to wane as they mature. To have an active imagination when you're a child is thought of as an asset. To be told you have an active imagination when you're an adult is not always a compliment. <laughs> we like it when adults are firmly tethered to reality. But what if imagination is necessary for entering a deeper reality, a truer reality? This is a question I've been considering as we've been reading Jesus' Sermon on the Mount these last couple of weeks. Jesus' teaching in these chapters is all about opening the imagination of his listeners, helping them envision and recognize the reign of God among them. How could they be expected to live in this reign, to be agents of this reign, if they couldn't imagine what it was like? So Jesus described and demonstrated the values of the reign of God, a kingdom in which the broken and outcast are healed and restored, in which the meek and mournful are blessed. In word and deed, Jesus helped his listeners imagine the kingdom of God, or as Matthew referred to it, the kingdom of heaven. This was a central focus of his ministry, cultivating holy imagination. Maybe Jesus spent so much time with this because Israel was experiencing a crisis of imagination, at least among its religious leaders. Jesus didn't recognize their vision of the kingdom of God. He had sharp words for the scribes and the Pharisees and the temple leaders who guided Israel. His critique wasn't of Judaism. Jesus was a devout Jew. But he knew their vision of the reign of God was too small. It seems the religious leaders had reduced the rich, complex, beautiful gift of Torah to a set of rules. Torah, or what is sometimes referred to as the law, was God's self-revelation to Israel, a gift of love intended to invite people into a covenant relationship with God, a living relationship rooted in God's justice and mercy. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were in danger of reducing the fullness of this gift to some type of righteousness checklist, things to do and not to do in order to keep yourself in good standing with God. Now, I really don't want to pick on the scribes and Pharisees. They are really an easy target. And I'm a religious leader. I have little doubt that if I lived in Jesus' day, I would be on Team Pharisee. But there is a tension between Jesus and the leaders that I want to understand. When I read these stories, it seems to me that the religious leaders imagined righteousness to be something they somehow attained, that it was the end result of being obedient, of living the right way, 
So righteousness was to be guarded as a treasured possession. The problem with this, of course, is that righteousness is not our possession. Not in Judaism, not in Christianity. It doesn't belong to us. No matter how effectively we follow God's laws, no matter how obedient we are, righteousness belongs to God. It is God's character, God's attribute, not ours. The only righteousness we possess is that which God has generously shared with us. Jesus reminds us of this throughout his ministry. He paid particular attention to those at the bottom of society, the lost, the last, the least. He showered them with God's gifts in part so that it would be clear that God's favor is not something to be earned. Jesus blessed those who were not perceived as society's winners in order to show us that the reign of God is ruled by God's grace and mercy, not by our accomplishment. We are made right, made holy, made righteous, not because of who we are, but because of who, is, who God is, because God is faithful and generous and wants to live in relationship with us. Unless your righteousness exceeds that, of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus said, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees because it comes from God and not from our own merit. God has given us all we need to be God's people in the world. We have been given all we need to be agents of God's mercy and justice. We have been given all we need to participate in the reign of God. Can you imagine? I hope so. Because being able to imagine how God relates to us helps us to imagine how we are to relate to others in the world. As God freely gives to us, we freely give of ourselves to others. Jesus employs these great metaphors in this gospel text to spur our imagination. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. The first thing I notice about salt and light is that they are mass nouns, impossible to individualize. And the you here is plural. You all together are the salt of the earth. You all together are the light of the world. Jesus isn't in addressing us as individuals, but as a body, his body in the world, working together, living into the vision of God's reign. The other thing I notice about salt and light is that they are pretty ordinary. We're not talking gold, frankincense, and myrrh here. There's nothing exotic about salt and light. What makes them valuable is their usefulness. Salt has little value sitting in a salt shaker. Only when it's sprinkled or poured out does it become useful. It enhances, it preserves, it even cleanses. And light, by its very nature, gives itself away. It serves to illuminate, to help us see something. 
Most of us don't enjoy staring straight into light, just like we don't enjoy eating pure salt. They are valuable when they're serving a larger purpose. The same is true for us, the body of Christ. We fulfill our purpose when clothed in Christ's righteousness, we give ourselves away for the sake of the kingdom. The prophet Isaiah helps us imagine what this looks like, tending to injustice and oppression, refusing to turn a blind eye and remain silent, sharing our bread with the hungry poor, providing shelter for those without homes. When we value what God values, when we share our lives generously, then, the prophet proclaims to us, our light will break forth like the dawn. Then we will be like a watered garden, fruitful and blessed. Then we will be satisfied because we will be living the life that God imagines for us, a life that reflects God's righteousness, a life of purpose, a life for which we say, thanks be to God. Amen.